Well, good evening, ABC College. Hope you're all doing well on this Wednesday. I guess the second Wednesday of summer, technically, which depending on where you're at, the weather is uh, not super (laughs) summer-like. But uh, either way, hope you guys are doing well here in this midweek. Uh, Thank you for tuning in to week two of our theology and doctrine study we're calling CORE. And we're going to go and get right in this tonight. Um, But just as a quick reminder, we do have a couple of exciting things happening this summer with our discipleship program, uh, with Sunday morning table groups, and some other things coming up. We'd love to have you check out our social media and get in on our text messaging and uh, group me to know more about what's going on uh, with that. So check that stuff out there. Uh, But for tonight, we're going to go and jump right into week two of our theology and doctrine study. So if you tuned in with us last week, you know we've been talking about what is the Bible and why can we trust it. So first off, I want to go and encourage you, if you missed last week, go ahead and watch that video, hopefully first, before you watch this video, because we covered a lot of things that will set up some of the questions we're going to answer tonight. Uh, that video was only about 30 minutes long, so not too bad. Check that out, and then come back and join us here. But as a quick review of last week, uh, we talked about what is the Bible. And we really gave a couple of answers to that question. We talked about how the Bible is God speaking to us through human words. We talked about how the Bible is a story, and Jesus is the hero of that story. We also talked about how the Bible was written by human authors, but actually it has one divine author, God, or really specifically the Holy Spirit. And lastly, we talked about how the Bible contains a collection of smaller books uh, that really make up the big story. And these books have been specifically recognized by the church throughout all church history as being divinely inspired by God. And we call that the church canon or, or the canon of scripture, these books that are divinely inspired by God uh, opposed to other books. And so you can get more detail on that last week. But for this week, We're going to continue this conversation on what is the Bible, and then specifically tonight, we're going to talk more about uh, why we can trust the Bible. So let's first answer the question, you know, that many people have about other books outside of the canon and why those books didn't get included into the Bible. You know, maybe you uh, watched the movie or read the book, The Da Vinci Code. You know, years ago, I think it may be older than some of y'all who are watching this, but you probably have heard about it. And uh, one of the big parts of that story was based on this conspiracy theory that the four Gospels in the Bible were chosen out of like 80 other similar books that the church at that time chose to exclude. And they said that, you know, the church ignored the rest because those Gospels taught things that challenged the authority of the church leaders at the time. That's kind of how Dan Brown kind of set up his novel there. Well, in reality, here's the thing there. There's not actually 80. Really, in reality, there's only about 30 other Gospels in existence. And really, the only ones that actually existed and were written in the time of the first century, which would have been relatively soon after the life of Jesus, are the four ones that we have today. You know, those were written right close to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. The other ones were written way after the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. The other Gospels were written about 100 years after Jesus lived, and really most of those other Gospels were written close to 200 years after Jesus lived um, and was resurrected. Here's the thing, you know, maybe Dan Brown says it in the book, but in reality, none of those other Gospels were hidden things to the church at the time that they were written. 
They weren't some kind of conspiracy. You know, we have lots of records of the early church fathers mentioning all of these gospels. You know, but here's the thing none of the early church fathers, for the most part, ever considered those other gospels to be scripture. You know, and really, if you want to think about two of the most famous quote unquote lost gospels, let's talk about them for a second. It's the gospels of Philip and the gospels of, or the gospel of Thomas. Now, some people claim that the Gospel of Philip says that Jesus was married to Mary of Magdalene, or Mary Magdalene. That's kind of the whole uh, Da Vinci Code thing. But here's the deal. If you read the thing yourself, you'll find that's uh, not exactly what's going on, or it's very much up to debate, even for people that believe the Gospel of uh, Philip is legit. But here, I'll put it on the side here on our screen. I want you to see uh, what the Gospel of Philip actually says that people think teaches that Jesus was married. It says this, and the companion of the dot, 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 being a place where we don't have uh, that piece of the papyrus, it's been lost, and the companion of blank, Mary Magdalene, another blank, her more than the disciples, another lost piece, kiss her on her, another lost piece, the rest of, another lost piece, they said to him, why do you love her more than all of us? All right, so that's, you know, it's kind of a mess because we lost so much of it. But even if we trust that the gospel of Philip is legit, which we shouldn't since it was, it was written so much longer after the real gospels, but even if we do, that alone is pretty slim evidence to believe that Jesus was married, okay? That's the first of the two most famous lost gospels. The second one is this, is uh, the gospel of Thomas, uh, which you, if you actually read for yourself, you would notice it teaches some very different things than Christians have believed really throughout all of church history. For example, let me just show you how the Gospel of Thomas ends. It ends with this. It says, Simon Peter said to him, let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. And Jesus said, I myself shall lead her in order to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that, that seems to go against a lot of what we believe as Christians and really what the rest of the New Testament teaches, right? So yet again, this is glaring at lost. This is not legit. This is not trustworthy. And in reality, all of these lost gospels, they were known by the early church fathers, and they were rejected because they failed the three tests that we mentioned last week. They didn't, uh, these lost gospels, they don't conform at all to what the rest of the Bible teaches, they weren't written by an apostle or someone closely connected to an apostle, and they weren't widely accepted by the early church and upheld as valid. Now, there, uh, there were other writings at the time that the early church respected and that they read, you know, just like we have lots of great Christian books that we read and respect today, but none of us are calling those extra parts to the Bible. Because the thing is, you know, very few early church leaders even wanted to include the good extra books that they had at the time in the Bible, because for the most part, and by the vast majority, the early church and its leaders recognized what was inspired by God and was scripture and what wasn't. And there was very little debate, and over time, it all got ironed out. And so these lost gospels we have really are things that we shouldn't really worry about today at all. Maybe you can read them for entertainment, but they're not something that really we should seriously consider should be part of the Bible at all. So that's that first question. What about another question that gets asked a lot? Are there errors and contradictions in the Bible? And if so, can I trust the Bible? It's a great question. Uh, the usual word uh, for this is the word inerrancy. And over the years, there's been a ton of debate you know, about what it really means for the Bible to be inerrant. But, but the short answer is this. 
No, because the Bible uh, is written by God and God is its ultimate author who has inspired it and God himself can't lie, it means the Bible doesn't contain any errors or contradictions. But here's a, here's a few things to consider. All right, first off, consider this. First, the Bible itself claims to be God's word and it claims to be completely true and without error itself. Just consider a few examples of this. Uh, Psalm 19 says that the law of the Lord, a.k.a. God's word, is perfect, sure, right, pure, true, and righteous. Also consider 2 Timothy 3.16 that says that all scripture is breathed out by God. It's spoken by God, and if God himself cannot lie, then scripture cannot have contradictions or errors. So the issue is this, is that even if we think we find an error in the Bible, we first have to start with asking, is the problem really with our understanding of the Bible? Is the problem with our understanding of the scripture in question, not the Bible itself? Now you may be saying, Kyle, that seems like circular reasoning to say the Bible's true because the Bible says it's true. And it kind of is, but here's the thing. You know, just because the Bible says it's true doesn't mean that, um, just because we argue the Bible is true because it says it's true, doesn't mean that's a bad argument because we got to think about how the Bible itself is incredibly accurate. And if its own accuracy is so astounding, then that really supports the fact that the Bible is true. So let me give you a few examples of the Bible's accuracy and how that really can support the argument for the Bible being valid, even if the Bible itself makes. Uh, consider a few examples. In the Old Testament, there are 36 instances of what we call transliterations of the names of foreign kings. Uh, you know, kings that were existing all around Israel at the time, they would transliterate it from their language to Hebrew. We could do the same thing to English today. There's lots of examples of that in the Bible. Well, if you go and you compare those names of foreign kings to extra-biblical records, you know, things like monuments, tablets that we found through archaeology over time, you're going to find that the Old Testament, the Bible, is accurate in every detail. And that may not seem like a big deal, but here's the thing. Consider another ancient record of kings, something called Manetho's record, just of the dynasties of Egypt. Consider that record there. Manetho has 140 kings that he mentions in his record. But if we compare his 140 kings he mentions to actual records we have that we've discovered over time, he only gets about 49 of the 140 names right at all. That's a pretty low number compared to the 100% accuracy that the Bible has historically. Another example. Think about Luke's gospel. In Luke's gospel, Luke correctly identifies tons of people by name, by title, by job, and by the time they lived. And at that time, you know, political titles were very diverse. They changed based on where you were and what time period it was. Yet, Luke consistently addresses people by the correct title based on the area that they lived in. And this has been supported and backed up by archaeology more and more over time. In archaeology itself, it continues to pile up evidence that the Bible is historically trustworthy. And anytime someone discovers something that they think contradicts the Bible, it isn't long before someone else makes another discovery that really sets things right in the first place. So as the Bible, as the Bible argues in itself that it's true, its accuracy supports that internal statement that it is true. Now, it's important to note you know, that the Bible is written in a way that we can understand it and in language that we can really comprehend. So sometimes the Bible is going to use figures of speech you know, that were common at the time it was written. So consider things you know, like you know, the Bible says the sun had risen, even though, yeah, we know that the, the sun actually doesn't rise. We know that the earth rotates around the sun. 
You know, or the Bible says, or the Bible refers to the four corners of the earth. And we know the earth doesn't actually have four corners. Sorry, flat earthers, the earth isn't flat either. You know, but the Bible's speaking in, you know, a common term of speech. You know, the Bible's also full of poetry. The Bible says, like in Psalms, it says that the trees of the field shall clap their hands. But obviously that's poetry. It's not saying that trees actually clap their hands. And some speeches in the Bible are obviously summaries, like the Sermon on the Mount or Peter's speech at Pentecost in Acts. If, if they were actual sermons, they would have been way longer than what's recorded on paper, so they're obvious summaries. And then some headcounts in the Bible are obviously just rounded up or down. None of those things are errors, right? They're just the Bible using common speech to talk to people and meet them where they're at, because those are really literary devices that are used in the different books of the Bible. They're not errors or contradictions at all. So on that then, that leads us to another question. Can I trust that the Bible that I have then is God's word? Well, the short answer is yes. If you have a good modern translation of the Bible, then honestly, today, you have nearly exactly what the original authors wrote at the time of their writing. You know, It's true that we don't have the original copies of each book of the Bible. They have long since been lost. But also, we don't have the original copies of many other ancient documents that no one takes for granted. Things like the writings of Plato or Homer. You know, in fact, with those books specifically, we only have about 10 copies of each of those books, and the copies we do have were made over a thousand years after the original was written. But yet, we have far more copies of the Bible, and we have far more copies that were written way closer to the time of the originals. Let me give you some examples for Old and New Testament. You know, for a long time, the oldest copy that we had of the Hebrew Old Testament was from about 900 A.D., which is a long time, right, away from the original writing. You know, but in 1947, you may know, we discovered these things called the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, which were over a thousand years older than the previous copies that we had. And the amazing thing is this, that you would think between that time uh, span, you know, between the most recent copies we had and then the Dead Sea Scrolls and how much time had passed between those copies being written, you would think there would be lots of differences, right, and, and over time as they were copied and copied and copied and passed down to different people. But the amazing thing is that if you copy the Old Testaments that we had before we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, and then we, you compare that to the Dead Sea Scrolls that we discovered, you're going to find that they are incredibly similar, that they're nearly exactly the same, except for some very minor, minor variations, you know, like spelling. They maybe added some conjugation in there every now and then. But none of the changes change anything about the meaning of the Old Testament at all. And then the New Testament. You know, for the New Testament, we have about 14,000 copies, which is a ton for ancient documents. But we have 14,000 copies, uh, and we have fragments that were written even as much as no later than 100 years from the original that was written. So we have copies that were less than 100 years away from the original, which is amazing for ancient documents. Especially when you consider how fragile the paper this stuff was written on. It was written on papyrus. It was not meant to last a long time. It's really amazing. It's almost like God meant for this stuff to last for a long time and for us to receive some of these things, right? It's almost like God had his hand in this, right? But just like the Old Testament, you know, the minor variations that we have in our copies of the New Testament, they're very small and they're only, you know, about less than 1% 
differences in all the different copies. So all the copies are about 99% consistent, and only a tiny, tiny amount of variations change anything about the meaning of the text. And none of those differences change anything about Christian doctrine. Most of the, uh, the changes in the text are just really kind of random things that are really obviously like a, a misspelling that a scribe made or something like that that we easily can identify and say, yeah, that was just a mistake a scribe made. We can correct that with another copy. So none of the differences change anything about what we believe as Christians. So what that means is this, and this is incredible, is that you know, outside of going back in time and you receiving the original letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, you know, outside of time travel, the Bible you have in your hand today is the most accurate copy of Scripture ever in existence. Another question, you know, why is the Bible authoritative? Well, first off, the Bible is authoritative because the Bible is God speaking to us. It's the God of the universe proclaiming truth to us. But to say the Bible is authoritative means that the Bible has the highest place of authority it really in anything else. The, the Bible has a higher place of authority over things like reason, tradition, culture, and even our personal experience, that the Bible proclaims truth and has the authority on truth above all of those things. Now, that doesn't mean that we ignore those other things. It doesn't mean we ignore every other source of truth, but it means that we have to examine every other source, source of truth through the lens of the ultimate authority of the Bible. Because if the Bible just becomes one of multiple sources of spiritual authority in our life, then over the time, over time, we run risk of allowing the Bible to just be one thing, one source of authority, and other sources become more important and more powerful, and overturn even the truth of the Bible. We see that in our culture today. So we have to be really careful not to put ourselves in a place of authority over the Bible to criticize it and to judge it, but instead we want to place ourselves under the authority of the Bible and let it stand over us to guide us in truth. So practically, that means. That whenever you hear someone proclaiming spiritual truth, you need to pay really close attention to what they're teaching and actually you know, if it is really agreeing with the Bible. You know, because it's easy for people to use the Bible kind of as a, as a sounding board for their own personal opinions, but we need to test everything that someone teaches and communicates about spiritual th- truth to see if it checks out with the Bible. You know, we want to be like the Berean Jews in Acts 17, who, who when they heard Paul teaching about Jesus, they went to the scriptures themselves, and they examined the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was true. So, because for the Bereans, you know, scripture was the ultimate authority, not one person, not their charismatic personality, but it in, in instead was God's word, and we should be the same today. The Bible is our ultimate authority of truth. But also, you know, is the Bible sufficient? It's authoritative, but is it sufficient? Which is to say, is the Bible all that we need for life with God? Well, yes, but let's unpack that a little bit more, you know, because during the Protestant Reformation that happened in the 1500s, the Reformers took up a slogan, you probably heard it before, called Sola Scriptura, which really just means it's Latin for Scripture alone, which just says that Scripture alone is our highest authority for spiritual truth. That doesn't mean that Scripture is our only authority, because we know that the Bible teaches us to submit to all other kinds of authorities. The Bible teaches us to submit to uh, pastors, to submit to government, to submit to parents. But we only submit to those authorities if they are not commanding us to uh, break the commands of the Bible. Their authority only goes up to the point where the Bible prohibits. So we'd rather obey God than man. But obviously, to say the Bible is sufficient, 
Also, does it mean that the Bible teaches everything uh, true in the world in every case? You know what I mean? The Bible is not a science textbook. So, like, if, if you're an engineer, you better get your engineering truth from an engineering textbook, right? Not from the Bible. The Bible doesn't teach you how to build bridges. Go to a textbook to learn how to build a bridge. Because you know, the Bible is not that kind of book. So it's not the only source of truth out there, but it is sufficient for all we need to know about God, all we need to know to be in a relationship with Him, all we need to know about the person and work of Christ, and all we need to know about what, about what God is doing in history moving forward. So that's what it means to say it's sufficient. It's not the only truth that we need in life, but it's the only truth we need for spiritual things. And we don't need any other extra revelation from God really to know what's going on in the spiritual world. God has given us all we need in the Bible. Another question, what about the different translations of the Bible? That's a great question people ask a lot. You know, these days, if you go to a Christian bookstore, you know, there's like hundreds, maybe even thousands, I don't know, translations of the Bible in English alone. That's not counting the other languages in the world. And the reason that there are so many even English translations is, is because you know, there's different uh, perspectives on how we should translate the original text of the Bible. Because obviously the Bible was not written in English. Old Testament was written in Hebrew with a little bit of Aramaic. And then the New Testament was written in Greek. You know, and there's different philosophies and schools of thought on how we should translate those original languages to English. Uh, one school of thought is word-for-word translation. Sometimes it gets called uh, formal equivalence. You know, this translation philosophy seeks to capture the precise wording of the original text and the personal style of each biblical writer. And, and these translations, they focus way more on being precise and being transparent so you can see you know, the word order and the structure of the original language. And that sounds great, but if you ever read a translation like this, you find that they can sound very stiff, they can be very hard to read, and honestly, even harder to memorize sometimes. Uh, but I think the best word-for-word translation is the English Standard Version, the ESV. It's one of my favorite translations. But also that the King James Version is also another word-for-word translation, but it's so antiqu- antiquated that you know most people struggle to read it today, which is understandable. But there's also other great word-for-word translations like the New King James Version and the NASB, the New American Standard Bible. I know a lot of people that love the NASB. So that's one school of thought, word-for-word. Another school of thought is thought-for-thought translations. It sometimes gets called dynamic equivalence. These translations attempt to convey the full nuance of each passage by interpreting the scripture's entire meaning and not just the individual words. So these are easier to read, but you do lose some insight into the original structure and the organization of the text. Uh, My favorite, though, for this type of translation is the NIV, the New International Version. But I also like the CSV, the Christian Standard Version, and the NLT, the New Living Translation. Those are all great uh, thought-for-thought translations. But lastly, there's the paraphrases. These are simply taking the text and paraphrasing it into modern language, and these are not translations. Uh, The most famous is the message, which is great for kind of getting a different perspective on the Bible, uh, but you got to realize that the message and other translations or paraphrases like it are not translations. They're just paraphrases. They play very loosely with the text of the Bible. So I would recommend never relying on a paraphrase as your only translation of the Bible. Use an actual translation and then use something like the message as a reference to kind of supplement your reading. 
because every translation has its strengths and weaknesses. You know, there's no need to fight over which one is best. They're all tools that we have to study God's word. Uh, But here's my recommendation. My recommendation would be to use a word-for-word translation like the ESV for most of your general Bible study, but then also have a copy of a thought-for-thought translation on hand to supplement your reading. You know, maybe you have like the ESV, but also have an NIV or a CSV there to kind of get a more well-rounded perspective on the text. You know, and then when you want to go more in-depth in studying, you could read maybe three or four uh, different translations of different kind of philosophies and then add in something like the message for a different perspective as well. And, and that, if you, read, if you read that many translations of one uh, text, you're going to get a really well-rounded view of what the original language is without having to know Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic at all. So it's pretty amazing we have all these tools in our disposal today. But also, kind of that brings up another question, How do we interpret the Bible? Well, the best way to interpret the Bible, first off, is to actually read it regularly. It shouldn't be surprising, right? Um, But the more we take in the Bible, the more we begin to see the grain and, and, you know, the, the flow of Scripture. And we can therefore interpret individual sections in light of the big story of Scripture. You know, and that means that it's honestly very beneficial for us to read the Bible not just in small pieces, but to read the Bible in larger chunks, especially if you've never read the Bible before. Because when you only read small pieces, like a little verse here or a chapter here, it can be really easy to misinterpret or just honestly misunderstand that section in light of the overall message of the Bible. But if you want a recommendation, I think the best place to start reading the Bible, if you haven't read it before or if you, it's been a long time and you want to get back into it, the best place to start reading the Bible is the Gospels. I'd recommend either the Gospel of John or the Gospel of Mark to start with. Because if you start there, you're going to be introduced to the hero of the Bible, Jesus. And then after you see his story and his ministry and what he's come to do, you're really going to be led to want to go back and start at the beginning of the story or learn more about the backstory that led to Jesus having to come at all. And that'll lead you to Genesis. And once you get to Genesis, then you can naturally begin to make your way through the overall story of the Bible and take it in in a healthy way. But just know that the Bible is full of lots of different kinds of literature, you know, which also include things like laws and censuses. So if you start in Genesis, you'll eventually get to Leviticus, and Leviticus is full of laws, which very few people enjoy reading long lists of laws. And that's okay. It's okay if you sometimes feel bored reading Leviticus. You've got to keep in mind that all those laws are really meant to do two things, that those laws are meant to point you to the holiness of God, and they're meant to point you to how those laws are fulfilled in Jesus, especially the whole sacrifice system that existed. It's meant to point you to Christ. And over time, the more you read, the more it'll make sense. Um, But as you read, you'll likely have lots of questions about different texts. You'll come across a passage and you'll be like, I'm not really sure what this this is trying to say. So what are some things you can do to interpret the Bible in a healthy way? Let me give you four questions to ask when trying to figure out what a passage is saying when trying to interpret the Bible. Four questions. First one is this. First ask, what does this scripture actually say? What does it say? Because we've got to be really careful to actually pay attention to what the Bible says, not what we think it says. You know, we don't want to commit what, what's called eisegesis, which is where we read our own ideas into the Bible. We've had plenty of that in the past. We don't need any more. So we need to carefully read the Bible. And that means paying attention to what the scripture actually says. And also it means paying attention to the actual literary genres of the Bible. 
you know, because the, the Bible is full of different kinds of literature. You know, for example, the Bible contains lots of narrative, which means it's trying to communicate a point through story. You know, the, Bible, the Bible also contains lots of poetry. You know, and poetry uses different words to evoke emotion and meaning, even if those words don't make a lot of sense in, in normal uh, communication. Like you say, that the trees clap their hands. Trees don't clap their hands, but it can evoke imagery of creation praising God. It also, in the Bible, there's the literature of discourse. You know, and discourse communicates a lot more logically in a lot more organized fashion. And, and the Bible has lots of discourse through things like letters and th- things like sermons. But to avoid misinterpretation, we first have to be aware of what kind of literature we're reading. Otherwise, we can really get our interpretation wrong. An example of this is that Mormons, they read the poetic imagery of Psalm 98 that says this. It says, his, his being God, uh, his right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. They read that and they interpret that to mean that God the Father has a literal body. But the Bible's clear in Numbers 23, that God's not a man. And in John 4, that God the Father is spirit and doesn't have a physical body. So they misinterpret that one phrase in poetry as something literal when really it's a poetic picture and the rest of the Bible communicates that God doesn't have a physical body. So you see how getting the type of literature wrong and not paying attention to what it really says and how it's saying it can lead you astray? So we got to pay really close attention and read well. That's the first question. What does the scripture actually say? Second question is what does the scripture actually mean? You know, the Bible is written by all kinds of different people in all kinds of different times and situations. So we have to do the hard work of determining the original context and we got to figure out what kind of questions and issues the original author was answering. We don't, have to, we don't bring our questions first. We've got to figure out what kind of questions the original author was answering before we ask our own questions. So what we need to do then is work really hard to figure out the original historical context and look at the context even of the letter or the book of the Bible as a whole to figure out what message is being communicated. We've got to figure out what the message of the original author is, and we've got to figure out that original context to make sense of what it's saying. So that's the second question. What does the scripture actually mean? Not what you know, we want it to mean, but what does it actually mean in light of the original context? The third question is, what overall principle or truth is this scripture teaching that can apply to all believers in any time and any place? You know, because sometimes... The Bible gives specific instructions that only apply to that one point in time, but they have a bigger overall principle to teach. You know, for example, in one of Paul's letters, he says to greet each other with a holy kiss. Well, obviously, he's specifically talking to that culture at the time where that was normal. Definitely today, with COVID-19, we're not greeting each other with a holy kiss at all, right? But the overall principle there is that we should greet each other in hospitality. We should be kind to each other. We should be warm and welcoming each other, especially when we gather as a church. And we get that overall principle, even if the specific principle only applied to a certain time. You know, So today, we can you know, give a hug. We can give a handshake or with COVID, we can give an air high five, you know, like, but we can be warm and hospitable. That principle applies even though the specific, communica- the sp- specific uh, command that Paul gave was more for a point in time and in a certain culture. Does that make sense? There's lots of examples of that in the Bible. Uh, so another thing to consider about uh, the overall principle idea is, you know, is the Bible in certain sections, is it being descriptive or is it being prescriptive? You know, because just, bec- just because the Bible has something in it, 
It doesn't mean that the Bible is saying that's right and good. You know, example, you know, there's lots of stories in the Bible where men marry multiple women. It's polygamy all over the Bible in the Old Testament. Uh, but that does not mean that the Bible is saying that it is right and good for men to marry multiple women. If you look at the stories of the Bible, pretty much every time a dude marries more than one woman, it goes really poorly for them. Solomon, that was like his downfall, was he had like hundreds of wives. So the Bible teaches you know, that it's not good and right, but it doesn't say it outright. It teaches it more through bad example. So sometimes the Bible is being descriptive. Sometimes it's being prescriptive where it says more specific commands. Hey, do this. Hey, don't do this. Okay? But one good way that we can find these overall principles is by reading the big picture of the Bible, reading the Bible in larger chunks. But another principle we can use to read the Bible well is to read the Bible in community. It's super easy for us to isolate ourselves and misinterpret the Bible when we're only in our own heads thinking about Scripture. But when we read the Bible together in community, especially when we read the Bible with people from diverse backgrounds, it helps us see the Bible with a different perspective. We get out of our own unbalanced perspective and we see the scripture differently. There are people with different backgrounds, with different experiences, and it really helps us to interpret the Bible in a much better way. We even can read, you know, Christians from past history and help us interpret the Bible better by not even just thinking about our own, you know, time period we're in, but even reading Christians of the past. So when we read the Bible in community, it can help a whole lot with that. But the fourth question we want to ask in interpreting it well, is how should I respond to what God has said? So that's the last part is we're going to apply what God has said. You know, because the, the Bible hasn't been given to us just to you know, learn information and kind of stockpile this stuff. But the Bible has been given to us so we can respond to it, so that we can take action, you know, so that we can live differently in, what, in light of what God has done. So sometimes when we read a scripture, it's going to lead us to repent of sin and change how we're living, to put our faith in God. Sometimes we need to you know, be comforted by Scripture. Sometimes we need to be encouraged and filled with hope by Scripture. But sometimes Scripture is going to command us to go out and do something specific. You know, like maybe go ask for forgiveness from somebody or go care for the vulnerable. You know, it's going to make us go and take action in some kind of way. But the point is this, is that every time we, we read the Bible, we need to be looking for specific ways we can apply it. We need to be looking for specific action steps we can take away. So don't get into the habit of just reading the Bible like a book, putting it back on your coffee table or whatever, and moving on with your day. Every time you read the Bible, ask the question, how should I respond to what God has said to me in this text today? That'll transform the way that you read the Bible. And the last question is this, and we'll we'll wrap up, is how should our view of the Bible affect our life? Well, uh, Martin Luther, the reformer, said this. He said, when the scripture speaks, God speaks. When the scripture speaks, God speaks. Because scripture is God speaking to us, and therefore we should memorize scripture, we should meditate on it, we should study it, we should teach it, we should live it, we should share it with other people, because the Bible is God speaking to us. It's the God of the universe who is communicating to us. How amazing is that? So when we read the Bible, we hear him speaking to us. So why would we not value it? Why, why would we not listen to it and do what it says? Because the Bible is what it is, because the Bible is God speaking to us, it should radically transform the way we view the book, and it should really open up the Bible to speak into every area of our lives. Because the Bible has been given to us so we can know the God of the universe, have a relationship with him, and we can be brought into a saving relationship with him through Christ. And if that's true, then why would we not want to make a discipline of reading it? Why would we not want to value it, you know, memorize it, all those kind of things? 
The Bible is an incredible gift that God has given us. So let's treasure it that way. So that's all we have uh, to say about the Bible. Uh, if you have a question from uh, the message tonight, I would love to try to answer it next week. Um, you can text the number. It's right over here. Text your question to that number, and I will do my best to answer it next week. Uh, try to send it in by Monday if you can. That'd be super helpful for me in my preparation. Uh, but besides that, we're going to wrap up, and next week, we're going to move on to our second topic, which is God. Right? <laughs> pretty, pretty small topic, right? But we're going to talk about God. You know, who is God? Who is this God that is revealed in the Bible? So we'll probably spend a couple weeks on that and then move on from there. But... Like we said before, we love you guys. We miss you. Hope you're having a great summer wherever you're at. Let us know any ways we can pray for you. And we are looking forward to the day here real soon when we can see you again. You guys have a great night.